Before we open up the Word of God this morning, uh, because I've been on a, a sabbatical, I, I've got a few things that I want to say uh, by way of uh, thanksgiving and clarification and encouragement. The, the first one is thanksgiving. I want to thank those who really just stepped in my place and served and led and ministered uh, while I had a, a month-long sabbatical. And uh, very specifically, Phil, thank you for preaching for six weeks. And thank you for carrying us through the book of Daniel. And thank you for being faithful to the Word. There are very few churches our size where there are multiple preachers that can step in and exposit the Word of God and clearly teach it. And so we should be thankful. I am thankful. Thankful for the music team who stepped up and kind of filled in the gaps for Phil so that he could... He could preach each Sunday. Thankful for everyone who served and loved and gave themselves while, while we were gone. So I want you to know I'm, I'm grateful for that. Uh, the second thing by way of clarification is, you know, today is July the 2nd. We are two days away from July the 4th, Independence Day. And you don't see any uh, American flags hanging or, or the church decorated in red, white, or blue. And if you were here on Father's Day, we didn't really have a, a Father's Day celebration. Mother's Day, the same thing. Memorial Day, the same thing. And I just want to say a word of clarification that we, we believe as the leadership and as a church that we want to honor mothers, we want to honor fathers, we want to honor those who have died uh, for the freedom of our nation. We want to celebrate the independence as, as uh, Americans that we have, and for those who have fought for those freedoms, we, we do. But what we also want to bring clarification to is that we are the church of Jesus Christ. We don't take our cues from our country. We don't take our cues from the public. We don't take our cues from the media. And while we as Americans are thankful, and I will spend my day on July the 4th thankful for men and women who have fought for freedom, my grandfather who fought for freedom, I will be thankful. I just think it's important for us to know that the church of Jesus Christ is more important than the United States of America. And so I just think it's clear sometimes for us to reset things and say, well, why don't we really go all out for Father's Day or Mother's Day or Independence Day or those things? Listen, we, there is an element where we should celebrate those things, but inside the church of Christ, we're going to put the spotlight on Christ and Christ alone. Okay, and then the third well, way of exhortation I want to give you is that we're starting this series in the Gospel of John, and what we're going to do during our fellowship meal, which we have every Sunday, we're going to have a time called Table Talk. And we'll have three or four questions that are kind of set up on your lunch table for you to entertain with the people that you're sitting around, your family, your friends, and others. And it's just a way to apply the text and to think through the text and how those those, that text implies or applies to your life going, going forward. And so I would encourage you to take those questions and entertain those questions as you're sitting with the people that you're sitting with at lunch. I also want to be uh, very careful to, and, and uh, desirous to thank all of our visitors here today. I'm very excited about your attendance here. We're going to take communion, as Ben said. And the re this is the, the thing, is that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ then you are welcome to celebrate communion with us and to enjoy the meal that Jesus has given to us. If you're not a Christian and you don't want to be a Christian and you're just here, then we would just encourage you not to take communion, but we would give you the primary encouragement to trust Christ today, to believe on Him 
and take communion for the first time as a child of God, we would, we would welcome that for you as well. Could we just pause for a moment? Ben, thank you for your prayer, but I want to I get centered here. It's the first time in the pulpit six weeks. I'm going to just pray a, small, a short prayer here. Father, as we open up this series in the Gospel of John, we want to ask that your Spirit will powerfully minister to our minds and our hearts that we may indeed see Jesus Christ, worship Him, and live for Him with our whole hearts, our whole minds, and with all the strength that You provide. Help us now, in His name. Amen. Imagine yourself being a Jewish person, born in the first century A.D., around the year 15 A.D. Your hometown is Jerusalem. Your parents were devout Jewish worshipers. So were your grandparents. So were your great-grandparents. So were your great-great-grandparents. And all the way down the line. You grew up going to the synagogue daily for Hebrew school and the, te- and the temple weekly for the Sabbath day celebration and all the annual feasts and celebrations that occurred at the temple in Jerusalem. You genuinely felt privileged because you lived in the city of the great temple where the presence and power of God was manifested through the temple court, through the altars for sacrifices, the holy place, and yes, even the most holy place where the presence of God was. As a kid, you learned the Torah. You grew up to embrace all of the religious exercises and traditions of Judaism. And when you were a teenager, a man named Jesus in his 30s made waves in Jerusalem and ruffled the feathers of your spiritual leaders. By his radical lifestyle, his audacious claims to be from God, the supposed miracles that he performed, and a total disregard for the Sabbath traditions and temple worship practices. You distinctly remember being in the temple one Passover, and this man drove out the money changers and salesmen with a whip of cords. He poured out the coins and overturned the tables. You were intrigued and offended by him at the very same time. You remember that the leaders were so infuriated at this Jesus that they finally had him killed. It was a brutal scene and an eerie day as darkness came over the land for some hours. And then a few days later, there were some rumblings about this Jesus being raised from the dead. And over the next few years, thousands of people in and around Jerusalem switched their allegiance from the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin to this Jesus. You weren't one of them, but a couple of your friends were. And over the years, they have tried their best to convince you that this Jesus is the Messiah. And as a good Jew, you've been able to to, to, um, stick to your guns and stay faithful to the religion that's been passed down to you generation after generation. But decades now have passed since all that happened with Jesus. Four and a half decades to be exact. But time isn't the only thing that has gone by the wayside. So has this temple. Every brick, every block, every stone, every worship instrument, gone. The Roman army marched into 
the city of Jerusalem about 10 years ago and ransacked the city with one mission, utterly destroy the temple of the Jews and kill every person who gets in the way. And that's exactly what they did. Somewhere between 500,000 and a million people were killed. Thousands more were scattered, enslaved, or imprisoned. You hid, and you survived. But it's been 10 years since then, and those have been brutal 10 years. You're getting old. Your memories of the temple worship are just that. They're memories. Your family is dispersed from Jerusalem to Antioch to Athens. Nothing feels stable in your life anymore. Everything feels insecure. And at some point during every day, you ask the question, where is God in all of this? Where is Yahweh? What is He doing? When is He going to send the Messiah? It is into this context that the Apostle John writes his gospel. He writes it for men and women like who I just described. He writes it for Jews and Gentiles whose lives are missing the most important thing that they need. He writes it so that people will come face to face with the Messiah. He explicitly says in chapter 20 that these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. John writes his Gospel to answer the question, who is Jesus? And answer it, he does. If you've got your Bible open to the Gospel of John, you can track with me right now, chapter by chapter, for a few minutes here. Because in asking the question, who is Jesus? From chapter 1, verse 19, all the way through chapter 21, John says, like in chapter 1, he says, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In chapter 2, he says that Jesus is the loyal Son who turns water into wine to honor His mother. In chapter 3, he says that Jesus is the Master Teacher who tells Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you must be Born again. Jesus is the missional Savior who who redeems the adulterous woman at the Samaritan well. He's the courageous healer who makes the invalid walk on the Sabbath day. He's the bread of life who feeds all those who come to Him. He's the good teacher who seeks His Father's glory. He's the light of the world who removes people from the darkness of their sin and death into the light of life. He's the Son of Man who makes the blind to see. He's the Good Shepherd who lays down His life for the sheep. He's the resurrection and the life who raises people from the dead. He's the humble servant who washes His disciples' nasty feet. He's the Son of God who promises to send the Holy Spirit as a comforter and a helper and a guide. He's the true vine who calls His followers to abide in Him and to bear much fruit. He's the glorious Savior who turns His disciples' sorrow into eternal joy. He's the faithful Son who loves and glorifies His Father in heaven. And toward the end of His Gospel, Jesus says that, John says that Jesus is the, the suffering King whose kingdom is not of this world. That He is the crucified King who finishes the work He came to do 
that He's the resurrected King who brings peace to everyone who believes in Him. And He is the sovereign Lord who says to every one of His disciples, follow Me. Church, John is saying, the Holy Spirit is saying, and therefore I am saying today, that as you look upon this Christ, what John is calling us to, what the Spirit of Christ is calling us to, what I am calling us to, is that if you have sins, the sacrificial lamb has come to take your sins away. If you are tired of living a life of failure and disappointment and emptiness, then trust in Jesus who calls people to be born again. If you feel like you are too bad to be reconciled and to be rescued, then cast yourself on the Savior who gives you living water and cleanses you from the inside out. If you long to be whole and complete and healed of all your diseases and problems, then run to the healer who will provide more than a temporary fix, but an eternal healing and an eternal wholeness. If you are spiritually malnourished and practically starving every day, then go to the bread of life who will provide nourishment for your soul. If you are scared to death of dying and going to hell, then cast yourself on the One who is the resurrection and the life and feel the abiding comfort of a future glorification that is as much yours as it is His. If you lack wisdom and power to live effectively as a husband or a wife, a dad or a mom, as a son, a daughter, a worker or a friend, then cast yourself on the Son of God who will give you His Spirit and guide you every single day in every responsibility that you have. And if you want to leave emptiness for fullness... And if you want to leave superficiality for genuineness, and if you want to leave idolatry for worship, then behold and believe in Jesus... The Jesus that I am revealing to you, John would say. Because He is the way, the truth, and the life. And nobody knows a life of fullness, a life of abundance, a real life apart from Him. That's who Jesus is. And that's what Jesus will do for you. And that's what we're going to see over the next year or two or three. And so I... In order to introduce Jesus properly, John begins with a prologue that that packs an unbelievable amount of truth about Jesus into 18 verses. And then he proceeds to unpack that truth over the next 21 chapters. And so I want us to read the prologue right now and get a glimpse of Jesus. We're going to get a glimpse of Jesus. And this is what I want to ask you to do. We will likely not do this every week. But as we begin the Gospel of John, I want you to do two things. I want you to stand, if you're able to stand, and open your Bibles. And what I would like, is I would like for us to reverence this Word. Take it in silently, as if we are walking on holy ground, as the Apostle John reveals to us, the glory of God in the person of Christ. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. 
He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh, and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. For from His fullness we have all received grace Upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. You may be seated. John sets the stage for what we're about to read through the entire book. And John basically says, I'm going to show you Jesus in this book. It's going to take me 21 chapters to do so, but I'm going to pack as much theological truth about the person of Jesus in these 18 verses as I possibly can. I want your head to spin, and I want your heart to pound at the glory of Christ in these 18 verses. I want you to be mesmerized and in awe, and I want it to create an appetite for God in your soul. And so church, what I would like to do is I would like for you to bear with me as I read the big idea of this prologue. And I tried to, to capture as much of the essence of verses 1 through 18 as I possibly could without including all 18 verses in the big idea. All right, so if you're taking notes, you can perk up and write it down. If you're not a note taker, that's okay. I'm going to say it two or three times and then, and then explain it a little bit. John says in these 18 verses that the eternal Son of God, who is responsible for creating and sustaining the world, has broken into human history and become a man so that he might perfectly reveal the glory and grace of God, and you might behold and believe in him. 
the eternal Son of God, who is responsible for creating and sustaining the world, has broken into human history and become a man so that he might perfectly reveal the glory and grace of God and you might behold and believe in him. And the rest of the book is nothing more than an exposition of that statement right there. John gives us a glimpse into the glory of Christ by telling us who He is and what He has done and how we should respond. And so, simply, church, and Lord willing, efficiently, let's just ask three questions to John. and let, Let's let him answer those questions. The first question is, who is he? You're talking about Jesus. You mention him toward the end of the prologue. You call him by ultimately by name. You call him Jesus. Who is he? John, who is he? And John would answer that question by pointing us to verse 1 and to verse 14. And he would say, primarily and essentially, he is the what? The Word. He is the Word. We want to like push back and say, but John, what does that even mean? That, that is such a big term. That is such a sweeping term. We don't really know what that means. And John would say, yes, that's a big term and that is a sweeping term because I don't want to pigeonhole the Lord Jesus for all that He is and for all that He's accomplished. And so I'm going to use this word, word, lagos in the Greek so that, so that you can understand the bigness of who He is. Now, the word lagos basically means the outward expression of an inner thought or an inner reality. I mean, we know what the word word means. It's a message. It's a statement. It's communication about something. And so when John calls Jesus the word right here, in some way, he is teaching us that Jesus is a statement. He is a speech. He is a message. He is the outward expression of a hidden reality. So if you're thinking about, okay, he's calling him the word. What does that really mean? I'm like into definitions. What does it mean that Jesus is the word? It means this, is that he is the message and self-expression of God. He is the message and self-expression of God. So that when we hear Jesus, we hear who? Yes, when we see Jesus, we see who? When we experience Jesus, we experience who? Yes, Jesus is the expression, the message, the speech about who God is. He is the representation of God. Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 4, do a great job of giving an, an explanation of this in vivid terms. Let me just read some of that to you. The, the writer says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has... Does anybody know what the next word is? He has spoken. He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. 
He goes on to say that his son is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. You see, the writer of the Hebrews understood what John understood is that Jesus Christ is the is the speech, he is the narrative, he is the message, he is the communication of who God is and what God does and who God loves and how God acts. That's who Jesus is. Now, given that, given that Jesus is the self-expression of God, that he is the message of God, as the word, as this message, as this statement, John says that, he serves in some, some different, has some different identity markers. The first marker that I want to tell you is that as the Word, Jesus is God the Son and the Son of God. He is God the Son and the Son of God. Now I say He's God the Son first, because it needs to be very clear, church, that Jesus is not a created being. Jesus is not somebody that's just a little bit higher than the angels or a little bit higher than broken humanity. But Jesus is very God of very God. Look at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Okay, there's a distinction in the reality, the distinction in, in in the personhood between the Word and God. There is a distinction. But then John says, And the Word was God. So what John is teaching us is that that as we see these realities of the, the person and identity of God in the pages of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, and we begin to see that there's the Spirit who seems to have divine and deity attributes, and the Son who has divine and deity attributes, and the Father who has divine and deity attributes, and you're like, how does this work? And essentially, John is teaching us that there is, yes, but one God who is made up in a multiple personhood, a triunity, and this Jesus is not less than God, but He is equal to God. And He is not somehow a creation of God, but that He is eternally God the Son. And at the very same time, while He is God, He's also the Son of God. Which is to say, He is in a relationship with God the Father that is beautiful, it is close. Even one of the verbs that indicates, and one of the prepositions indicates that there was a face-to-face relationship between the Word and God such that they were together in a close personal, fulfilling, joyful relationship of love. And God the Son, who is also the Son of God, in being the Son of God, is commissioned by His Father to go on a mission. And He submits Himself as a good Son does submit to a good Father and says, whatever your will is, Father, that's my will. Whatever you want me to do, I want to do. Whatever mission you send me on is the mission I want to go on because I'm not just God the Son, I'm the Son of God and I want to honor my Father. And so, as the Word, He is God the Son and the Son of God. He's also the Creator and Sustainer of the world. Look down, back down at the text. 
Since he was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. So this man that that John is going to be going on to talk about for 21 chapters who has these 12 disciples and they eat fish and they break bread and they go from Galilee to Jerusalem and all throughout Judea and, and they sleep and, 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 and they walk and, and they interact and, and, and he's a real person and he's a real human. He's also saying here that this man is the creator of the world. Not only is the creator, he's the sustainer. Like he made everything that he is. Let's just, let's just think about that for a moment. Jesus, the Word, He created every rock, every mountain, every stream, every human, every animal, every ocean, everything that is, He created. Nothing, nothing in the world can say, I exist apart from the creative power of Jesus. And Chris Heitch and I were talking before the service, and he and I had come to the same conclusion as we had meditated on it, but I want to tell you this. You are created by Jesus. You would not exist if it wasn't for the creative power and the sustaining power of Jesus Christ. And I want you to be very clear on this fact. You owe Him. You owe Him. He made you. He sustains you. He provides for you. You don't have the right to say, I'm going to live my own life in my own way on my own terms. He's the Creator. And He's the Sustainer. And He's worthy of our worship. He's also the life and light of men. Notice down in the text, He says, He uses the word light, I think seven times, I remember counting earlier in the week. He uses this word life twice, back to back. And and he says, in him is life, and he's the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And And as Jesus shines light, he's showing us things. And church, I want you to think about this. I want you to think about being in a building with no windows whatsoever and the door is so uh, tightly cut around around the the walls that there's no light that creeps in in the door and for those of you who ever travel down Chocolaca Road and I see that little music building that exists over by Camp Lee I think about that building there are no windows in that room it's eerie to me all right but but you're in a building with no windows and it is pitch black dark It's daytime outside, but you can't see yourself, you can't see your surroundings, and you can't see outside. But Jesus, as the light and life, He comes to this building and He opens up the wall and makes a window. And as soon as the window is made, what comes into the building you're in? Light does. And when light comes in, you now can see yourself. 
And not only can you see yourself, you can see your surroundings inside this building and you can see where furniture is and where the clock is on the wall. Light is coming in and you see yourself and you see your surroundings. And not only do you see yourself and your surroundings, but you can look out that window and see what? You can see the world. And this is what Jesus is doing is light and life. He has built a window so that when you look at Him, and you let Him come into your heart, you see yourself for who you really are. You see your surroundings, your world, for what this world really is. And more importantly, and most supremely, you get to look through the window who is Jesus Christ, and you get to see the glory of God. You get to see Him because He shines light so that you can see who God is. That is the role. That is the work of this person who is light and life. Now, John also says, very importantly, that he is the human manifestation of the glory of God. Okay, so he's creator and sustainer. He's God the Son, the Son of God. He's light. He's life. But most Poignantly, in verses 14 to 18, He is the manifestation, not just the manifestation, the human manifestation of the glory of God. Let's look down at verse 14, and then of course you have the parenthesis in 15 about John, and then verse 16. So let's look at 14 and 16 and following. Again. The Word became flesh. That is, He became a human. And He dwelt among us. Many of you are familiar. That word dwelt, it it means tabernacled. He came and set up tent with us. And we have seen His glory. The glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from His fullness we have all received grace and Upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. When John and the disciples saw Jesus for the first time, they did not see this being who radiated an illuminating glory that they were like, oh, I've got to be drawn to this. Look at this supernatural look that this individual has. Is he God or is he man? Is he an angel? Look at that resplendent glory. Everybody come and look at this, this glorious manifestation of this radiance and illuminating power. Oh, everybody flock to this thing that we just don't understand. Is that what... Is that what people saw? No. No. They saw and experienced the glory of God, that is the beauty and the excellence and the holiness of God through the character of Jesus Christ. And I think that's very important for us to understand, church. That when we think of glory, we often think of radiance, Glow, bright, shining lights. And the reality is, is that that is included in the ultimate and infinite glory of God. 
but inherent. In essence, the glory of God consists of the grace of God and the truth of who He is. Take your Bibles and turn back to Exodus. Back to Exodus. You can hold your place in John. The Lord has delivered Israel away from the Egyptians and Pharaoh and He's done miracles and He's done incredible work and He has this personal relationship with Moses, the representative of of God, really the voice for God to the people. And He's... Moses is interceding for the people of God and, and the Lord is speaking with Moses. And in verse 18 of chapter 33... I may not have told you guys that, what chapter. In verse 18, I'm sorry, of verse, verse 18 of chapter 33, Moses pleads with the Lord and he says, please show me your glory. Show me your glory, Lord. And the Lord said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. I think we can say this, that there is a direct relationship between the glory of God and the goodness of God. Almost to the point where we could say that the glory of God is the goodness of God. But he says, I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. That is Yahweh. I am who I am. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see my face and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I pass by. And then I will take my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And the Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite the mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord preached a message about the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. He preached. And this is what the Lord preached. The Lord. The Lord. A God merciful and gracious. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. The Lord reveals His glory. 
Now, yes, he walks by, catches the hem of his garment in this whole scene. But if you look back down at verse 6, the Lord reveals the essence of His glory and right in the middle of that revelation, He says that He is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love, the Hebrew word hesed. Faithfulness, the word amet. It is used over and over and over in the Old Testament to describe the essence of God. Hesed and amet. That is steadfast love and faithfulness. And you should know that in the economy of God, faithfulness is equal to truth. Truth is equal to faithfulness. And what am I trying to tell you? I'm trying to tell you that God is revealing His glory. And His glory can be seen in the essence of His being, which is grace and truth. That is steadfast love and faithfulness. You see it over and over and over in the Old Testament. And when the Septuagint, that is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, is transcribed, it is translated in the Greek, it uses the exact same words that the Greek right here in John chapter 1 uses to use it as grace and truth. That is, that is, charis and aletheis. You should know that because what God's people understand is that God is not a disjointed God. God is not an inconsistent God. But God manifested His glory to Moses by showing him His essence and His character and His being and lets him see the hem of His garment. But now in Jesus Christ, we have the human manifestation of the glory of God so that when you sit at the feet of Jesus and you hear this man who speaks words that are true and you see this man who extends grace to adulterers and grace to blind people, and grace to sinners and grace to hungry people, what you are experiencing is the very glory of God that is full of steadfast love and faithfulness that is grace and truth. So that when John says in a verse later that the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, he's not saying that the law was bad, that it was terrible, that there was nothing good about it. He's saying you got the grace of the law through Moses, but you get the grace of the human manifestation of the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Bow before Him. Bow before Him. So who is Jesus? He is the Word. He is the Word who manifests Himself. He is God the Son, the Son of God, the Creator and Sustainer of the world, the life and light of men the human manifestation of the glory of God. D.A. Carson, probably the most preeminent Greek scholar in the United States, was in college as a Christian. And he met a Palestinian Muslim. And he gave this Muslim a Bible. And he said, I want to befriend you and I want us to study the Gospel of John together if you're willing. He said, if you'll read it. And the Palestinian agreed. It was the first semester. They were freshmen. And when Christmas break came, they had not met together about the Gospel of John. But when Christmas break came, the Palestinian Muslim man had nowhere to go. He wasn't going to go all the way 
um, across the ocean. And so, D.A., Donald, asked his friend to go home with him to Canada, to Ottawa. And, and he agreed. He didn't have anything else to do. And so, and so, in Ottawa, which is the capital, and the parliament, and all of that, D.A. takes his friend on this tour of the capital and the parliament and all of its wonders and glories of the buildings and everything else. And they, they come on this tour, led by a tour guide, to these statues. And if memory serves me right, there were these statues of Plato and Socrates and Moses. Moses was holding a book or a scroll or something like that. And as the tour guide began to explain who all these different individuals were in these statues and how they represent law and how they represent justice and all of these things and you know, sophisticated thought. Out of nowhere, when the tour guide asked if there are any questions, the Palestinian friend who is a Muslim raised his hand and said, Where is Jesus Christ? D.A. looked over at his friends like, where in the world is this coming from? And the tour guide said, I'm sorry, I, I didn't understand. He said, where is Jesus Christ? And the tour guide says, I'm sorry, I can't really answer that question. He says, your Bible, your Bible says that the law came through Moses, but grace came through Jesus Christ. Where is you? And G.A. Carson, with his eyes wide open, said, I gave him a Bible and told him to read the Gospel of John, and for the last three months he has been meditating on the Gospel of John. And he understood something that you and I as Christians need to understand, that the law was grace. It was. It was a wonderful thing for us to see the glory of God in His morality and in His character and in His standards. But when we behold Jesus Christ, we behold the human manifestation of the beauty and excellence and holiness of Almighty God. Okay, so let's just ask two more questions that will be basic and they will not take long. Let's ask the question, so what has He done? What has Jesus done? And church, I just want to tell you very plainly and efficiently, He has become one of us. Sometimes that's hard for us to really embrace. God has become a human. But we know Scripture attests to this. John attests to this. Paul tells his apprentice, he says, we have one mediator between God and men. Who is it? The man, Christ Jesus. Listen, church, we need to revel in Jesus because He was willing to come to this broken down world with these broken down people and say, I'm going to be one of you. I'm going to face temptation like you. I'm going to face disappointment like you. I'm going to face spiritual attack just like you. I'm going to face broken relationships just like you. I'm going to face all kinds of issues that you face so that I can identify with you for eternity long so that when I go to heaven and I send my spirit and you pray to me, and I'm mediating for you, I will know what you feel. I will understand what you're going through and I will advocate on your behalf as somebody who understands what you are and what you feel. He became one of us. Not only did He become one of us, He revealed 
God's glory to us. We've said enough about that so that when we see Jesus, we see God. When we hear Jesus, we hear God. And He offered grace to us. Jesus offers grace to us. He says, I'm I'm not coming merely to demonstrate how awesome I am. I'm coming to demonstrate how awesome God is and how much I want you to be in covenant relationship with me so that I can open up the dump truck load of my mercy, my love, my friendship, my fellowship, my relationship, my concern, my kindness, my steadfastness, my patience, my understanding. I want to unload all of that onto your life so that you can feel how much God really loves you. What has He done? He, came, he became one of us. He revealed God's glory to us and He has offered grace to us. So the final question, how should we respond? How should you and I respond? How should the people that actually saw Jesus and knelt at His feet and broke that bread that He turned into a feast for 5,000 who, who, who were blind but then became seeing and who are invalid who began to walk. How, how should they respond? How should we respond? Well, if you look down at the text, in verse 11, it says that He came to His own and His own people did not receive Him. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. This is how we should respond today. We should see Jesus first. See Him in His love, in His righteousness, in His faithfulness, in His grace and in His truth. Be willing right now to stop thinking about other trivial matters and be willing to see Christ with spiritual eyes and say He is truly the Word. He's the Creator and Sustainer. He's God the Son and the Son of God. He is the life and light of men. He is the human manifestation of the glory of God. I see it. I'm not going to deny it. I'm not going to put my hands over my eyes. I'm not going to be willfully blind to that reality. And I'm going to see Him for who He is so that I can see myself and my world and God Himself for who we all really are. See Christ right now. And not only see Him, receive Him. Take Him in. So you want to make Him your own. Your Savior. Your God. Your Messiah, your King. Say, I, I don't want to mess around. I don't want to live in the, 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 the brokenness of my life and try to fix things on my own and try to work things out on my own and try to manipulate situations and people to accomplish what I want because at the end, I always leave feeling empty and powerless. Yeah, you leave feeling empty and powerless because you are empty and powerless. And any manifestation of power that you feel like you actually have is nothing but a superficial manifestation of false power that Satan is more than glad for you to feel all the time. 
Receive Him. Trust Him. And celebrate Him. What is John doing in this gospel for 21 chapters? What is he doing? Yeah, he's writing so that everyone can believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He is. He's writing. He's got that purpose. But he's also writing as a celebration. He is celebrating that he has a Savior. He's celebrating that he has a Messiah. He is celebrating that he has a God who was not unwilling to come and fix the brokenness of his sinfulness, but was willing to come and heal him of all all his brokenness, and all his sins, and he knows he's got a place at his right hand one day when he finishes living life. So he's celebrating. And church, I want to call you today to do precisely what John and the disciples did when they beheld the glory of God in the face of Christ. See Him for who He is. Receive Him into your heart and into your life and celebrate the fact that if you have done those first two, you're a child of God. You're in His family. You belong to Him. He calls you His son. He calls you His daughter. And if He calls you His son and His daughter, He will never, ever, ever, ever cast you out of His family. Why don't we pause for a moment. And you bow your head. And I want you to meditate on your response to the glory of Christ. And ask the Lord to help you see Him, receive Him, and celebrate Him. I ask you not to imagine that you're anyone else, anywhere else. I want you to realize who you are and where you are. And I want you to realize right now that the Holy Spirit of God is speaking to you through the Scriptures and He is calling you to give your life to the Word. To this message, this self-expression of God. To receive Him. To embrace being in His family. And to give your heart and your life and all that you are to this Christ. I'm going to give you about 30 seconds to a minute to individually pray to the Lord to help you see, receive, and embrace Christ. Christ.